There she is. We are in, I'm going to give you the little backstory here. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. A few people that are here tonight that haven't been here before, and we welcome you, of course. Um, let's see. We are, time-wise, we're in the middle of Jesus' ministry, but we're really toward the very end. He's got maybe five or six months before the cross here, so we're most of the way through his ministry on earth. John 8 is, for the most part, a dialogue or debate between himself and the Jewish religious leaders who are, for the most part, not only unbelievers and not willing to even listen to him, but they're actively hostile to him. They hate him. They see him as a threat. They see him as a phony Messiah. And so you'll, you'll hear some of that dialogue toward the end of chapter eight. Earlier in this chapter, he said he was the light of the world, not a light, the light. That's going to come up a lot in chapter nine. Um, as well. In this chapter, it's more of that debate between the religious leaders and him, and he's going to make a startling claim, another one, about who he is that's going to really set them off, you'll see. Um, we already talked about that. Chapter nine is all about blind eyes seeing and then seeing eyes being blind. Well, I'll explain that as we um, go on, but for now, let's jump back in. So I know you're awake, those of you on Zoom and those of you that are here, say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Okay, that was good, especially right over here. But, uh, John chapter 8, uh, Jesus says in verse 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? And then he talks about those that belong to God in verse 47. They hear what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. This is a shock to those religious leaders to hear this. So they call him a, a demon-possessed Samaritan in the next verse. He corrects them and says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. I want you to remember that because it's going to come up in the next chapter. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. That would be God the Father, and he is the judge. Verse 51, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word or abides in my word, understands it, believes it, and acts on it, he will never see death. We talked about this last week. What a beautiful thing that death has no sting. It says in 1 Corinthians for the believer that we are in this world, and when the moment comes that we die, we pass instantly into um, a sort of another dimension, right? And we're absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no separation time-wise, and it's a glorious graduation uh, for believers. So that's what he says. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You'd have to be God to say that, obviously, and he is. He's been saying it over and over a number of different ways. So here's where we left off, verse 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, and yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. So their point is, Abraham is the first Jew, right? God calls Abraham and he's the start of the Jewish religion. Every single Jew can trace his ancestry back to Abraham and Sarah. So he, Abraham, is one of three people greatly revered in the Old Testament by Jews, Abraham, Moses, King David. But probably Abraham, Moses would be the two that are way out front, even ahead of King David. So he's just said, 
if you keep my word, you'll never see death. Um, and so now they're saying, uh, they're basically asking, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the man about whom New Testament and old, it says that Abraham believed God, listen, heard what God said, believed it and acted on it. But I'm leaving that out now because the Bible doesn't even say that. It just says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So greatly revealed, revered Abraham was. Um, so he's saying, you're talking about never seeing death. They're making the analogy here uh, or the comparison. You think you're better than Abraham? Abraham was a great man of God. He died. Moses died. David died. You could go down the whole list, right? So, so they're saying, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham, middle of verse 52, Abraham died. So did the prophets. And that's true, right? Walter Martin used to say the death rate is still one per person on planet Earth. We're all going to make it. Last disease, last injury usually is what takes somebody out. Are you greater than Abraham? Yet you say if anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. So here comes the question now. Verse 53. And by the way, when you know my little MO. Whenever we see a question, I like to answer it, even if it's a rhetorical question, because theirs is rhetorical. 53. Are you, and the you is emphatic in the Greek, are you greater than our father Abraham? Uh, he died and so did all the prophets. Who do you think you are? It's all emphatic. You, you, you. So their point is, are you comparing yourself to Abraham? Do you think you're greater than Abraham? Because he died and so did all the prophets. Who do you think you are? So let's answer that question before we move on. Verse 53. Are you greater than Abraham? If Jesus answered it literally, he would have to say, and honestly, well, yes. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm far greater than Abraham. I created Abraham. I created the whole universe. And I am actually Abraham's God, right? Which would have made their heads explode probably. So he doesn't say that, but he's about to say it about five verses from now. Don't be looking ahead. I saw you reading. Uh, just kidding. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Now, this sounds like he's not answering the question, but he is. They're asking him, are you stating that you're greater than Abraham? Like I just said, if he told the truth completely, he would be telling the truth to say, I'm far greater. There's no comparison between me and Abraham. I'm an eternal being. I'm God, second person of the Trinity. He's a human being that lived and died, but he doesn't say that. But they're asking him in a way to glorify himself. So he answers 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Now you say, what does that mean? It means that in the Bible, unless the glory comes from God or to God, it means absolutely nothing. If God's not involved, if someone is saying, I am the greatest, or I'm awesome, or I'm whatever, it means nothing. 
because people come and go. He's not glorifying himself. You're going to see it, like I said, in chapter nine, big time when he could glorify himself. If you notice in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he does miracles, right? And if you've ever seen televangelists on TV, they make a big deal out of bring the cameras over in the spotlight. And here, I'm going to do this mighty work. Now watch, behold the hand of God. Jesus very quietly heals people. And almost always, especially Mark, Matthew, and Luke, almost always says, don't tell anybody, right? Doesn't want to be known as a healer, wants to be known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the real reason he comes to die. So he's not there to glorify himself. He's there for one purpose, to glorify his Father, to reflect his Father's light. That's your job and mine as Christians as well. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Now he's going to talk about his glory. My father, he's talking about God the Father, whom you, notice the wording, claim as your God. A little bit of sarcasm, right? You people claim he's your God. He's going to tell them he doesn't know him before. They don't know him, sorry, before this chapter is over. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Twice already at this point in the life of Jesus Christ, he's been baptized and he's had the Mount of Transfiguration. In both cases, one was public, the baptism. Mount of Transfiguration was Peter, James, and John only. But in both cases, God the Father, do you remember, spoke. This is my beloved son, much deeper voice probably than mine. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him glorifying uh, his son. My father, whom you claim as God, is the one who glorifies me. Here comes verse 55. Though you do not know him, I know him. Don't miss the, the unbelievable thing he just said. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders. I don't mean locally in some synagogue in some small town. We're in Jerusalem here, probably after the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the religious experts. If anybody knows God, it's them. He's telling them, you don't know God. That's pretty, a pretty amazing thing to say. You do not know him. I know him. Now, in the Greek, you can't see it in English. You just see the word know, K-N-O-W. It's there several times. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Do you see that? Okay, there's a play on words here you can't see in English. There's two words for know in Greek. One is I know, K-N-O-W, gnosko in Greek, and it means I know, I have learned. I went to a class, let's say, and two semesters or whatever, and I know now I've learned. I didn't have the knowledge, and I got the knowledge from learning. You with me so far? The other word for know is, oh, it's somewhere here, oida, O-I-D-A, different kind of know. It means know, but it means to know innately. Nobody taught me. I never didn't have the knowledge. I know. So when he's talking to them, he says, you don't know him. You haven't learned of him. The first one, but I oida him. I know him innately. Remember, God 
was face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You might ask the question, how long were they together like that? And the answer is forever in the past. It's incalculable how well Jesus knows the father, right? So that's what he's saying. I know him innately. You haven't even learned a thing about him and you think you know the scriptures. Um, now, this is interesting. Verse 55, do you see it there? If I said I did not, meaning I did not know him, I'd be a liar like you. Ouch. Okay. Now, you might ask the question, why is that there? Okay. I had to really dig for this. If I said I didn't know you, I'd be a liar. Why would he say, why would someone say they didn't know someone that they did? And the answer is human nature. Because he is human. The reason he might say, okay, okay, I don't know God like you people do, is for expediency, to get along. They would love him then. Okay, now you agree with us, right? Compromise. But he can't do that because he's God and God cannot lie, right? So that's why that's there. If I said I didn't know him, which he might be tempted to do. Some people would peer pressure. They're all kind of yelling at him. Okay, I'll, I'll compromise. I don't know him like you do. I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him. And then he throws in another way of saying what he said um, earlier, verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Remember that? Here he says, but I do know him and I keep his word. Keep his word doesn't mean I keep it a copy of the Bible in my pocket. It doesn't mean um, I, I, it does mean I know it and understand it. Keep his word means I obey every single thing he wants me to do. I perfectly keep his word, obey his word, abide in his word. I've never sinned. I never will sin. Pretty amazing claims. Just in those few verses, um, He's told them they don't know God. They're liars, a liar like you, uh, and that he's sinless. Okay, so now he's on a roll, verse 56. Now he's going to really stretch their minds. He says, verse 56, your father Abraham, father of the Jews, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day or when he saw my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, keep in mind, this is around the year, um, around the year 30 AD. Okay. Give you, it's almost 2000 years ago. Abraham lives more than a thousand years before that, more than 1500 years before that. Okay. So he's saying Abraham who lived a long time ago and he died, he saw my day and he rejoiced at it. Okay, the day of his glory, the day of his ministry, the day of his maybe resurrection and what have you. You say, wait, how could that be if Abraham lived that far in the past? For you people, it would be on this side. How, how is that even possible? Okay, so to be honest, scholars are all over the map on this, and they might all be right. Um, it's hard to say. When did Abraham see Jesus's day. 
since they didn't live concurrently at the same time. Okay, theory number one, and these are all pretty good. None of these are, are way out there to me. Genesis 12, three, God says to Abraham, I'm gonna, mind you, this is an older man with an older wife. They can't have children. And God says to Abraham, I'm gonna greatly bless you and you're gonna have a male son. And from that seed, that son, all the earth's gonna be blessed from one of your descendants. Keep in mind, this is impossible. My wife can't have children. I'm too old. He's thinking, but he believes God. So it could be prophetically, he looked forward to the day through that um, prediction. It could be that he, God, revealed in a vision, not in the Bible, that this was all going to go down, that there's a seed of his down the line that's going to die for the sins of the world and be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It could also be Hebrews eleven thirteen, which says Abraham and other Old Testament saints, the other prophets of the old Jewish prophets, saw Jesus's day, listen, afar off, almost um, prophetically saw it as the types that they had seen. The lamb in Passover that is sacrificed is a picture of Jesus. The water that the the rock i'm sorry in the in the wilderness that moses strikes and the water comes out they saw it that way they saw it in the they're getting bit by snakes remember in in the book of numbers and moses prays to god and god says put a snake up on a pole anybody that looks to that snake on the pole will be healed from the snake bites they have if they look in faith jesus claims that for himself in john 3 and says that snake on the pole was me, basically. First um, Corinthians 10, Jesus, Paul says that rock was Christ, the rock the water came out of. So there were all kinds of pictures in the Old Testament. It could also be that. But um, let's see. Yeah, it could be a revelation Abraham was given after he died or when he was on the earth. We don't know. But I want you to turn to Genesis 22, because I'll show you my theory, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. So go to Genesis 22. If you go to this church, Oakhurst Evangelical Free Church, I gave a sermon on this a while back. Probably pretty forgettable, but anyway, go to Genesis chapter 22. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this story, but this is an amazing story. I'm just going to skip verses, and we're just going to kind of blow through it quickly. Um, Abraham, finally, they finally have a son. Total miracle birth, the son. Son's name is Isaac. God tests Abraham, verse 1 of chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. He says to Abraham, you know the thing you love the most? That your son? Yeah. I want you to go sacrifice him on a mountain I'm going to show you. Whew. Now, if it's me, if it's you, wouldn't you say, wait, wait, I, I need more information. Why? I thought you said you were going to bless me with so many descendants, the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore wouldn't even add up to the same number. How can this be if I'm going to sacrifice him? There's no questions. Um, early the next morning, he gets up, saddles his donkey. Verse three, takes with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. Cut enough wood for the burnt offering, sets out for the place God had told him about. 
I want you to notice all the little hints that this has to do with Christ. What's the next words at the beginning of verse four? On the third day. Sound familiar? Anybody? What happens? Jesus, New Testament on the third. Oh, there's a resurrection. Okay. I'm going to argue that in Abraham's mind, he fully intends to kill his own son because God told him to. Right. He figures, I believe, God has to work this out. He promised me millions of descendants through this kid. Now he wants me to sacrifice him. I love God. I'm going to obey. I don't understand this, but it's God's going to work it out. I think Abraham knows he's acting out prophecy and that this is what Jesus is talking about. I'll show you in a second. So third day, he looks up, sees the place in the distance. Look at verse five. I want you to notice the faith. Verse five, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, up the mountain. We will worship. That's he and Isaac. You got the picture? And then I will come back to you alone because I'm going to slaughter my son. Is that what it says? We will go up there and worship. And then we, Isaac and I, will be back. Does he fully understand it? I don't think so. Does he know what to expect? No. But he trusts God. God made a promise to him. And he's so sure he's speaking this faith out. We'll be back. Takes the wood for the burnt offering. Verse six, places it on his son, Isaac. You remember Jesus carrying the wood of sacrifice? What wood? The cross was wood. The cross became an altar, didn't it? The wood. Takes the wood and places it on his son. Isaac is acting out the role of Jesus Christ. Abraham is acting out the role of God the Father. Keep, stay tuned. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was better. He carries the wood. Abraham himself carries the fire and the knife. Two of them go on together. You could always almost cry at verse seven. Isaac speaks up and he says to his father, dad, yes, the fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, right? We, we've, we're missing a key ingredient here, dad. Did you forget? Abraham knows you're it, son, but he doesn't say that, right? What does he say? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. They reached the place. He builds an altar. Verse 9, he puts the wood on it. He binds his son, Isaac. You know that they tied and then nailed Jesus to the cross, right? He binds his son, Isaac. Uh, and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, reaches out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He fully intends to do it. God made a promise. God told him what he wanted. Abraham's going, I know you're going to work this out, but here goes. Raises the knife. This is like that moment in the movie where the music is building and you're going, oh, is he, he's not going to do it, is he? But he is. Then, uh, let's see, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, verse 12. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. You really heard my words and believe me. Because you have not withheld your, your, from me, your son, your only son, that's how I know. But we still got a problem. They built an altar, supposed to be a sacrifice. Abraham had prophesied, remember, 
God himself will provide the lamb, my son. Remember that? Verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns, went over and took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of or in place of his son. Now, those of you that know anything about animals know that a ram is a male sheep. It's a male lamb. Where is he? He happens to be, what a coincidence, caught in a thicket. What's a thicket? It's a bunch of thorns. You mean like the crown of thorns? Are you saying there's a connection? Absolutely. He's caught in a thicket of thorns. What a coincidence. And Abraham goes, there's something to sacrifice instead of my boy. He goes and takes the ram, sacrifices him as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham was about to kill the thing he loved the most. And God said, no, wait, don't do it. Centuries later, God, the father went through the same thing. His son carried the wood to the hill. By the way, not all, but most scholars believe, this blows my mind, that this spot is the same spot where Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's the hills of Moriah outside of Jerusalem. Could it be a different hill nearby? Yes. But wouldn't it be just like God to do it on the same spot? I don't know. I won't sell that one too hard. Um, so he sacrifices the lamb instead. He knows he's acting out prophecy because he says, we'll be back. Do you remember? Verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Isn't that interesting? That's the wrong name. It should have been the Lord did provide past tense, but he knows in the future, the Lord will provide, right? And the ultimate sacrifice to this day. Okay. So then from there, it goes on. Let's go back to John. You say, I wasn't here to study Genesis. Can we move on? Yes, of course. Um, that's my guess for when Abraham saw his data could be a day, could be any one of those things or a combination of them. Um, but he knows that God's going to bless the whole world through him. Okay, go back to, uh, let's see, are we at verse 56, right? So Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So they're, they're just laughing at this, verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? This would be like me saying, Julius Caesar is my pal. And you go, well, wait, man, that's a long time ago. He saw my day and come on, are you, you know, a little nuts? Are you saying you're not even 50 years old? By the way, Luke tells us Jesus starts his ministry at about 30 years of age. If that's true that he's 30, then he's about 32 or 33 at this point, dies maybe 33, 34, somewhere in there. Um, Abraham's you know, you've seen Abraham, you're not even 50 years old. Verse 58, I tell you the truth. Anybody have King James? Is it verily, verily, I say unto you there? Anybody have it? Truly, truly, I tell you, some translations have. I've told you this before. Whenever you see Jesus say that, it means, listen up, this is really important, right? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Here it comes. You ready? Before Abraham, this is how it reads. The word born is, is in NIV. It's not in the original, not in Greek. It's implied. 
Before Abraham was, I am. What's going on here? Bad grammar, right? Should have been before Abraham was, I was. Meaning pre-existence. I lived before Abraham was. That's true. That's not what he's saying. Genesis 3, I'm sorry, Exodus 3, Moses talks to the burning bush, remember? And it's God himself. God in the burning bush tells Moses, I want you, I picked you to lead my people out of Egypt where they're slaves. Moses says, I'm not the right guy. Pick somebody else. God says, don't tell me what to do. I'm paraphrasing, but, and eventually, God, eventually Moses says, okay, let's say I do it. Who are you? What's your name, God? Who am I supposed to say sent me to these Jewish people you want me to lead? And God says, I am that I am. You shall say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am means self-existence. I've always existed. I always will exist. I exist on my own. None of you and none of and I don't either exist on my own. We had to have parents. We have to have food. We have to have oxygen. He doesn't need any of that. I am. The Jews understood that's the divine name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. Okay, you got it? So he purposely says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you think I'm stretching the truth here, look at verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. You know why they want to stone him? Blasphemy. The penalty for blasphemy is stoning. They, his critics, understand what many people don't. He's not just saying, I existed before Abraham, which would be enough of a claim. He's saying in perfect English, I tell you the truth, I'm God, right? You're looking at him. You don't know the father. I do because I am God. Earlier, he said he was sinless, which is a trait of God, isn't it? Um, who can convict me of sin, on and on. But here, this is the big, if the others were hand grenades, this is a nuclear bomb for these Jewish people, who, I want you to notice, picked up stones to stone him, but they don't stone him. Why? Over and over in this gospel, it says, his time has not yet come, so they can't harm him. He's got to die on Passover as the lamb of God, the true lamb of God. When the, when the um, religious leaders are killing the lambs for the sacrifice, that's when he's bleeding out on the cross, dying. So they understand what he's saying, but he just hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. Pretty amazing um, thing. The proof that he is God is his, his deity is obvious in the miracles, the wisdom, the virgin birth, which is to them a rumor, but some know that it was a fact. Um, not only his miracles, he shows that he has power over the creation, right? Gravity, there's a law. You can jump if you want right now, but I'll tell you, if you jump up, you're going to fall down, right? You can throw something in the air and it's going to fall down. It's a law of science. Jesus walks on water, defying the laws of gravity. Jesus tells a storm more than once, Shh, and the storm stops. I mean, if, you, if, 
if you wanted proof somebody was God, what more would they need to do? He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He heals lepers. He heals people long distance, or as I like to call it, wirelessly, right? You don't have to plug in. He tells a few people, go home. Your son's cured over there. 86 miles away. The guy goes home and they go, yeah, he got better at one o'clock. And the guy remembers it was one o'clock. Jesus said it. His, the proof is in his sinless, perfect life, the miracles, the wisdom, and the fact that he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. Okay. Summary for this chapter. Remember earlier, it was who's your daddy? Who is your spiritual father? He tells the Jews that their father is the devil. They don't know God. His father is God. I got news for you. Whoever your father, earthly father is, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is God is now your father. He wasn't when you were a sinner. He's a father of all who, who um, were created. So in a sense, he's father of all human beings. But in a spiritual sense, when you were born again, that's the family you were born into. You are a daughter or a son of God. If God had a fridge, he'd have your picture on it. He loves you more than you can imagine. The astounding thing is, as you read the Bible, you also find out you are more sinful than you ever dared think, and yet you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Pretty amazing thing. That's who your father is. The whole Christian life is lived with that in mind, that we want to please him and do good works, repent. This is what the sermon was about Sunday. I happen to know I was here. Um, not to earn salvation. That's not why we do good works. We do them in response to, in gratitude for the unbelievable gift we've been given. We've been grafted into the family of God. Pretty amazing. Um, we talked about paradoxes in this chapter. A paradox is an apparent contradiction, right? Two things that appear like they can't both be true. And they are. If you wish to save your life, you must lose it. Matthew 16. To be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must become the servant of all. Matthew 18. And here, if you want to be truly free, surrender your life to Jesus. Free from sin, free from uh, being unable to please God, to being able to do God's will. Um, let's see. I think we're going to move on to chapter nine because we still have time before our two minute break. Still awake out there? Okay. Stay amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Okay, I saw you. That's a nice shirt. Okay, let's keep rolling. <laughs> you don't know who I meant, do you? Chapter nine, little introduction. Earlier, John 8 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Not a light, not one of many lights. Have you ever heard of the Baha'i religion? The Baha'is believe that there have been several lights. The Baha'is believe that every religion is right. Everyone. So that Buddha was one of the lights. And so was Moses. And so was Jesus. And so was Muhammad. And so was Baha'u'llah, which is the Baha'i prophet. They're all right. All the religions are right just many different paths to the same place. The problem is the religions unbelievably contradict themselves. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam teach there is 
one God. Hinduism, there's one main God, three gods total, but there's 330 million Hindu gods. They don't agree. The goal in Christianity is heaven. The goal in uh, uh, Eastern religions is nirvana, where you're absorbed into the great nothingness. Doesn't that sound good? No, doesn't sound good to me. In any case, he said he was the light of the world. Now he's going to prove it in chapter nine. But I want you to know that chapter nine is um, one of those stories that has so many layers. We could be here all night just talking about the layers. Hopefully you brought your sleeping bag. We're going to go to midnight. Just kidding. Lesson number one, there's going to be a brief discussion in this chapter about human suffering. And the big question, why? Why is there human suffering? Um, there's going to be a discussion about the blind man who is healed physically. That's the main thing. When people say chapter nine of John, people usually go, oh yeah, the blind guy that got healed. But there's so much more than a physical healing of eyes that were born blind. Number three, Jesus is going to prove he's the light of the world. Number four, you're going to see what happens when unbelievers, listen, investigate a miracle. When unbelievers investigate Jesus Christ, you're going to see their attitude. Number five, you're going to see an encounter with this man th that this man has with Jesus Christ that is much more than physical eyes seeing. This man will end up by the end of the chapter being a believer, have eternal life, be born again. You say, that's all in this chapter? I sure hope so, or we're in big trouble. Let's dive in, shall we? Chapter 9, as he went along, so the last thing that we left off with, they picked up stones, but Jesus hid himself. By the way, not, not all scholars agree with me on this, but verse 59, I think that's a little miracle right there. There's a bunch of Pharisees around him. They're looking, they're speaking to him. He's not a mile away. And he says, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him. How do you, in a crowd of Pharisees and other Jews, hide yourself if it's not supernaturally done? I think it's a little miracle there. I could be wrong. Verse one, as he went along, by the way, we don't know how much longer, how, how much time took place. It could have been right afterwards. It could have been sometime later. As he went along, he, that's Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, verse two, rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man, the man born blind, or his parents that he was born blind? Okay, that's the background to what's going to happen in this chapter. I want to take it apart. Here's what I think happened. I think there were beggars all over. It was nothing new to see beggars near the temple because that's where the most kind-hearted people would be. If you're a beggar, there's a crowd gathering. You don't beg on some country road. You beg downtown in some city or at an intersection. You ever see those people with the sign, right? We'll work for food, but give me free stuff. Okay, sorry. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, first of all, I believe that it went down this way. I want you to walk with Jesus in your mind. You're with the disciples. We're walking. And all of a sudden, he stops. And if you all take an extra step or two, and then you realize, oh, 
he stopped and he's doing this looking somewhere and so you all go you see him and you go what's he looking at and you see it's this blind beggar okay probably sitting down and the blind beggar from his standpoint he has never seen anything he's born blind and it's possible if Jesus is close enough that the blind beggar has heard oh good here comes some people coming and then he's heard the procession stop. So he's hopeful, I'm, maybe I can get a little money and have enough money to buy dinner tonight. The man is born blind. In the Old Testament, there are some miracles, not a lot, but there's miracles that the prophets do here and there. No one heals the eyes of a blind man in the Old Testament. You say, why is that? There's other miracles, not blindness, because the Old Testament says God, the Father, is the one that opens the eyes of the blind. It says one other thing. The Messiah, when he comes, Messiah means Christ, Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek. When the Messiah comes, the Christ comes, he too will open the eyes of the blind. One of the things on his resume that you'll know it's him is he opens the eyes of the blind. The good thing about that is you can't say, well, gosh, everybody's opening eyes of blind with miracles. How do we know which one it is? He's the only one. Um, so, up to this point. So he sees a man blind from birth. Now, he, being God, supernaturally knows everything. He knows what people are thinking. He looks at the guy and realizes the guy's been blind his whole life. Let's say he's 30 years old, the blind man. Um, he can't be real old because his parents are going to be in the story and they would have to be really, really old like me. So anyway, um, the, he sees a man blind from birth, okay? And the disciples want to make this guy a theological discussion point. Jesus is thinking, where is there the greatest need? Oh, there it is. And he stops and looks at the guy. The disciples ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Odd question, don't you think? It was commonly held as a belief, not scriptural, I'll show you why in a second, that somebody, we, everybody suffers a little and we all get a broken bone or an ache or a pain or some bad cold or some ailment, but people that are really afflicted paralyzed or completely or blind and deaf and you know helen keller types the commonly held belief was probably getting what he deserved like it's some sort of this is hinduism karma have you ever heard of karma karma is not in this life but if you live a bad life when you die, you'll be reincarnated. You'll come back as someone or something that's alive else. And if you were a really bad person, you could come back as a mosquito or a rat with two legs. And you deserve it, right? 
you're a good person, you might come back as a prince or a king or a wealthy person or somebody that's, you know, powerful. For that reason, in Hindu countries, do you know this? If there's somebody begging, the Hindus know, don't help them. Don't give them money. What? Why? Because you're going to mess up the karma. He, in a previous life, did something horrendous and deserves what he's getting. Don't mess it up. Let me show you how ridiculous, no offense, those of you that are Hindus, I doubt anybody is here, right? Why, why would you be here? Hindus don't eat meat. Do you know why? Because that cow might be Uncle Harry who died 11 years ago. You don't know. Don't mess it up. That chicken could be Aunt Sarah who you just want to leave that all alone. Pretty wild, right? So they grow grain and they put it in big silos and rats eat the grain. There's a huge problem with that and with disease. Why don't they eradicate? Why don't they call some exterminator? Because the rats could be your cousin Luigi who died four years ago. How do you know? There's no reincarnation in the Bible. It's appointed unto each man to live and die once and then the judgment. All right, we're going to take our two-minute break and leave you hanging right there about with this question, who sinned or this, this man or his parents. Let's take our two-minute break just to stretch our aging bodies. I'll be back in two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study Part 2. So we just have left this story. We've got a man born blind, blind from birth. Now, so you're wondering, what is this question they're asking? The disciples ask the question. They're really asking, why? Why would anybody be born blind? Somebody that's 20 and is struck with blindness, they might think the dude did something really bad and maybe he deserves it. But a person born blind, okay? This is how far Judaism had strayed from the truth. Rabbis at that time and before then in their writings suggested that it's possible, are you ready for this, to sin in the womb. And that's maybe, so that's why they're asking, who sinned? This man, meaning in the womb, or... Possibility number two, remember the broader subject is the existence of sickness and evil and suffering in the world, okay? So the disciples ask, did this guy's parents sin? And the punishment for their sin is on Harry, the blind guy here, who was born blind. The parents did something so bad that to punish that sin, they punished their kid, okay? So, um, a brief detour before we move on, and I really want to get to the story, and we probably won't finish, but I want to tell you that there are people, um, and there's a reason for this, but it's misguided. Let me just say that. There are people that believe that the sins are visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. You say, wait, that's in the Old Testament. Yes, it is. Okay, Exodus 25, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Listen, visiting the iniquity of the, that iniquity is sin, iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who 
hate me. You say, whoa, so do I. I say, whoa, too. Deuteronomy 5.9 says virtually the same thing. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. You say, wait a minute, that does sound like that if your grandfather was a really bad sinner, you might have a horrible life paying for his sin. Okay. First of all, that's not what it means. I'm going to tell you what it means. But first, I want to tell you what, uh, that there's a verse that contradicts that. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, uh, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He will by no means, listen, leave the guilty. Un, uh, no, I'm sorry. Wrong verse. De um, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. Meaning what? If your dad sins judicially, when they catch your dad, they're going to punish your dad, not you. Got that? Okay. Number two, Ezekiel 18.20 is the verse that clears this up. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, iniquity sin, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. You say, okay, so if your dad was a horrible sinner, he's going to pay in judgment, not you, right? Right. However, it does say, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third, on the children of the third and fourth generation. Which is it? And it's both. In terms of punishment for sin, my dad may have been a sinner, and God will not punish me for his sins. He will get punished for his sins if he wasn't a believer. Turns out he was my dad, so that's a different situation. And then what's he talking about then with this visiting the iniquity? Okay, listen, I know of more than one family where the grandfather beat his kids, the boys, okay? And in that family, they bore that iniquity in such a way that they beat their kids, okay? visiting the iniquity is different than punishing them for it. In other words, I know of other families where the grandfather was an alcoholic and the dad became an alcoholic. I know of a, fa of a family where there were a bunch of divorces and the, the result was great poverty. That kind of stuff for us, it ought to be a warning to not be sinners because it affects not just you, but down the line, right? All kinds of things can happen from that, um, that the consequences of the sin um, can be visited on the children, not the punishment for the sin. There's a difference. The disciples are asking, go back to chapter nine, who sinned, this man in the womb, give me a break, or his parents? Is the son paying for the sins of the parents? Biblically, impossible. Okay, Jesus is going to answer that right now. So is he getting what he deserves or is he getting what his parents deserve? That's really what they're asking. The broader question, by the way, is, huh, born blind. The broader question is, is sin the reason 
Okay, listen, you might be surprised. The answer is yes. You say, wait, now I'm really confused. No, listen, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world in which there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no possibility of getting injured. They would have never died had they not disobeyed Adam and Eve. So the God said to them, the moment you eat of that tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They started dying that day. I believe they died physically, uh, spiritually. Sorry, that's another story. But eventually they died spiritually. Now they can get sick. That's true for all of Adam and Eve's kids, of which we're all part. Same with you on Zoom, except a couple of you, I think. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my point is this. We live in a fallen creation where sickness, death, injury, crime occurs because we live in a fallen creation because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Jesus comes to correct that once and for all, that curse, where he reverses the curse by paying the price, and we now will not see death because we believe in him. We just read it in chapter 8. Do you remember that? So in a general sense, all sickness is a result of sin, going back to Adam and Eve. Not the person necessarily, it's not payback, it's not karma, but people do get sick and get injured. Okay, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. NIV has, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me, night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Okay. Why'd you read all those verses in a row? Okay. Little, going to give you a brief Greek lesson here. In Greek, there's no punctuation. None. Right? Period, comma, question mark, exclamation point. You figure it out from the context. This is one of the rare places in the Bible where these sentences could could go two different ways, okay? Um, hold on, I've got notes for this. So, um, New American Standard has, uh, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, period. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night's coming when no one can work. Similar to what you have probably, right? But there's a lot of scholars that think it should be this. Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, period. But so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Do you see the difference? He's not saying the reason this guy's blind is so I can heal him um, and people will see the works of God. That is what happens in the story, but that may not be what's meant. Let's go back to the text again, because you're probably all very confused like I am. First of all, what we learn from Jesus is you're wrong. It's not because this guy sinned in the womb or some weird thing. It's not. He's not paying for his parents' sin. It's neither one. So that's out of the way. We know that, that a deformity, a being blind, born deaf, born without speech, whatever it may be, lame, without legs, the, never look at a, a handicapped person and say, hmm, maybe they're getting what they deserve. 
I believe this came from a, a prideful attitude of people that go, look at me, I can see I must be better than that person, right? And you can't get more outside of biblical Christianity than that sentiment. So don't ever think that. Um, so it's not that his, the man sinned or his parents, but let's take the NIV way or NASB. Um, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Okay. This particular man is about to have something happen that will display, show the world God's work. Who's going to do the work, Joe? Jesus. Why? John 8, 58. I am. He's about to prove again that he's God. Remember what I said earlier, Old Testament, only God opens the eyes of the blind. The Messiah, when he comes, will open the eyes of the blind. Um, none of the prophets open the eyes of the blind. If he can pull this off, it's going to be a pretty good proof that he is who he says he is. Um, neither this man sinned. It happens so that the work of God might be displayed. Look at verse four. Very interesting verse. I'm on the wrong page of my notes. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, we already talked about that. Um, if you get the notes, Exodus 4 and Psalm 146 say only God opens the eyes of the blind. Uh, Messiah does it, Isaiah 29, 35, 42. Many times it says it. Okay. Um, Jesus sees the guy based on his need. The disciples see the guy based on, let's get into a little theological discussion here. Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. Notice how briefly he answers, neither the parents or him. Work of God, verse four, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Who's the one that sent him? God the Father, right? As long as it's day, night's coming when no one can work. What? Right? Don't you think, what is he talking about? That implies... We got a very limited time here. We got an urgent situation, very limited time. Okay, couple theories on this verse, and they might all be right. Again, limited time number one. He's got maybe five months, right? He's going to die on the cross. He's not going to be on the earth anymore. Now it's true. He's going to send his Holy Spirit to live inside of the disciples and all who believe, including all of you and all of you, and we will do the works that he does. Uh, and greater works, Jesus even says, because we're going to be witnessing and leading people to Christ and all of that. Greater works, not necessarily a physical healing. Physical healings are great, but they're temporary, right? If all he does is heal this guy's blind eyes, the guy's going to live another 40 years and he's going to die. And it was good that he could see way more important eternally to save his soul, if you will. Okay. so. Scholars wonder, does the man hear this conversation, the blind guy? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? The blind guy's thinking, wow, they're talking about me, right? And he's thinking, how did I sin? I was in the womb. My parents seem like nice people. They go to the temple. Um, but he's heard that the work of God, if he heard it, might be displayed in him. And the blind man is thinking, who's talking? 
And what kind of work are you talking about in me? Pretty amazing. Okay, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Some think it's the, the time of Jesus's time on the earth. Not much time left. The majority opinion was, this is very Jewish. What do you mean? There's only so much day. Night is coming when no one can work. In a Jewish sense, they got about 40 years left. That's it. You say, well, no, there's Jews on the earth today, and they go to synagogue. Yes, I know. But for the last almost 2,000 years, the Jews have not practiced Judaism. They haven't. They don't have a temple. They don't have a high priest. There's been no sacrifice of lambs for sins on Passover for each family. I could go on and on. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have the um, Ten Commandments, all, all the stuff that is part of Judaism, they don't have. They don't have a Sanhedrin. 71 scholars of Judaism, in God's eyes, was completed, fulfilled in the Messiah who came. And most Jews missed it, went right over their heads. So he's saying, we got to work while there's daytime. Um, let's see. As long as it's day. Notice the next word is the shocker. You're expecting him to say, as long as it's day, I must do the work of him who sent me. Is that what it says? No. It says, as long as it's day, we. Wow. Must do the works of God. We. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to Jeff and Doreen and Joe and Diana and the other Diana and even Dave. He's, he's, thank you very much. He's talking to all of us, right? Wait, we're supposed to do the works of God? Amen. Those works aren't just healings. They're showing love, showing mercy, showing grace, forgiving, being generous, giving all the things we've gotten vertically. Listen, if you remember nothing else in the Bible study tonight, say amen so you'll remember this. Say amen. Amen. Everything you and I have gotten vertically from God, forgiveness, love, mercy, grace, peace, um, good things, material things, we are supposed to say thank you to him and in obedience, shine that same light that came vertically outward to the other people. You mean forgive her and him? Uh, yes, because you didn't deserve it either, right? Give to them. Yes, he gave to you. It's not one way where thank you, God, me and you and nobody else. We shine out horizontally what he's given us vertically. Okay. As long as this day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming. That could be 70 AD. They tear down the temple stone by stone. They kill a bunch of Jews. They disperse that whole country. They've never had their country back till 1948. They still don't have a temple, a high priest, a sacrifice. Night is coming. Now, the other school of thought is it's the crucifixion. And there is a verse in the Gospel of John where the, the Last Supper, do you remember? One of you is going to betray me. Who is it? Is it I, Lord? No. Is it you? Is it me? Remember? And Judas says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus says, yes, it's you. What you're going to do, do quickly. And at that moment, the Gospel of John says Satan entered Judas and he left. Why are you mentioning this, Joe? Because the next verse says, and it was night. 
night is coming. That's why some people think it's the whole betrayal, trial, beatings, whippings, crucifixion, when no man can work. All the disciples are going to be scattered. They're going to be afraid. Peter's going to deny him. I, I don't even know who you're talking about. Remember that? Okay, let's keep rolling. We got lots of time. We, a night is coming when no one can work. Verse five, while I am in the world, this is why people think he means his earthly ministry, five more months, six more months. While I'm in the world, he repeats what he said in 8.12. I am a light, the light. I, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. You say, wait, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Well, he's not in the world anymore, so that's the end of that light. What does he say to his disciples? In the Gospel of Matthew, I believe, I'm the light of the world. He says it again. You know what else he says? You are the light of the world. Oh, we're like little gods. Wrong. Eh, wrong. What it means is, you know how there's the S-U-N, sun in the sky? And then there's the moon, the night light, right? You know that the moon has no light of its own. All it does is reflect the light of the sun. In the same way, we're supposed to be little moons reflecting the light of the S-O-N to the people around us. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What does light do? People, human beings, are most, for the most part fearful of the darkness. Have you been in your home just doing something or watching TV and suddenly poof, every light in the house goes off, power cut somewhere, right? It's a, kind of a weird feeling, isn't it? Were you afraid of the dark when you were little? Most kids were. Monsters under the bed, right? Got to close the closet door and the drapes because there might be somebody looking in that would freak you out. Okay, you're going to have nightmares tonight. I'm sorry. People are generally afraid of light, light uh, afraid of darkness. Light is very comforting. Light is warming. Light is required for life on the earth. The sun comes up every morning. I'm not going to sing that song, but I could. Um, so he is the light of the world. The good news is, he shines that light and blesses. But don't forget that the light also exposes you. The real you, not the you you show to me and the other people. God bless you. Hi. The real you. Yikes. The beautiful thing is he sees it all anyway, and he loves you anyway. He's not going to take your picture down from the fridge in heaven. He loves you. But he's not content to leave you that way either. He wants to change you. Amen. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. What now? Right? Imagine, I want you to put yourself in the shoes or sandals of the blind dude. Okay? You hear there's a rustling and someone's walking toward you. Blind people, by the way, the other senses are incredible. Stevie Wonder, the singer, used to make money, very poor, on the streets of Detroit where he grew up. Steve Len Morris is his real name. He would bet people, you drop a coin on the sidewalk and I'll tell you what it is. Bring quarter. Bring dime. He, his ears were so tuned. This man hears really well. He hears somebody's coming over. He may have heard the conversation. 
he can hear the man, Jesus, spitting. What? Why spit? Why mud? I don't know. I'll tell you this, though. I bet I read eight commentaries and listened to 10 sermons, and there's, it's like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. Opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. I'll just tell you right now. Okay. Some of them make a lot of sense to me. Some have said, well, you see, he took the dust of the earth, which is how he made man, because he's going to recreate eyes in a man whose eyes have never seen. So he's using his saliva, which by the way, the Jews believed this is gross. Sorry, ladies. They believe the saliva had medicinal purposes, just saliva, period. So if anybody, if you'd like me to spit in your eye, come up after class and see me and I'm, I'll be happy to, some of you are really, I'm going to enjoy it for some of you. He spits on the ground. Okay. Now imagine if you will, just go with me on this, that he had healed everybody the same way. Okay. Here comes a leper, Jesus. Let me spit on the ground. And, and here comes a, a somebody whose mother died. Let me spit on the ground first. There's no formula to his healings. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes he just says, receive your sight to a guy. I think it's in Luke. And the guy sees, doesn't even touch him. Why the mud? Why the spit with the mud? Mud's bad enough. Spit and dirt make mud, right? Pretty bizarre. Um, okay, so uh, I'll give you the, the, the major theories and the one I think makes the most, ascent, most sense. I want you to notice, though, the guy doesn't say, please heal me. There is a blind man that says, blind Bartimaeus, remember? Heal me of my, I want to see, right? Guy doesn't say a word. He hears the rustle. He's probably thinking, hopefully they'll give me money. He doesn't get any money. He gets his sight because Jesus is the light of the world. Okay. Um, before we go on, I might as well do this now. Who is this guy? What do you mean? I mean, who is he? The blind guy. Ken, yeah, you're used to this class, aren't you, Ken? It's you. It's me. You say, I'm not blind. I might need glasses, but listen, the blind man is a picture of you and me. Okay. We can do nothing for the kingdom of God when we're unsaved. We think we see before when we were unsaved, we were sinning, we were selfish, we were blind to the things of God. Couldn't see Jesus, didn't know Jesus, just like this guy. Doesn't even barely know who Jesus is. It's you. It's me. Okay. So, but you still didn't answer, Joe. Why the mud? I'll give you the two main theories. They're kind of weird. You say, well, I, you know, I got to say, I think the mud is, uh, is kind of gross. I think it's offensive. Okay. Imagine you're the blind guy and you feel him putting, caking something in your eyes. He can put two and two together. The guy spit. I think this is mud. What an insult. What an offensive thing. That's the gospel. It's offensive. Do you know why? 
because I want to earn it. What do you want me to do? I'll live up to your commands and then you're going to owe me. Forget it. Can't do it. You know why it's offensive? Because Jesus says, look, I did it all. I want to give you a free gift. No, no, I want to earn it. No, I want to do it on my own. No, the book, the Bible says you're so sinful. You can no in no way save yourself. You can't stop sinning. You're a slave of sin. Are you willing to come to me now? I guess. Go ahead. Mud in both eyes. It also makes the guy go wash, right? He's not going to leave the mud there, which will harden there. It makes the guy go and wash, which we're getting ahead of ourselves. But um, John Piper, so it's, it seems offensive. It seems a little silly. You mean a guy died 2,000 years ago, and you believe that because of that, your sins are forgiven? It's a little hard to believe. Mud in the eye? Here's mud in your eye. Ever heard that saying, right? Um, it might even be harmful. Who knows how dirty that dirt is, right? Kind of a silly thing, right? No, it's not harmful. It's what you need. It's a little humiliating for the blind man. Leave him alone. It's a little humiliating to me to admit I, I couldn't stop sinning. I was hopeless. And I turned to Jesus because I had no, nowhere else to turn. I admit it. It's fine with me. So it offends man's pride, wisdom. And it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians says. Okay, John Piper believes that the reason it's here is because in chapter 5, there was a controversy. Do you remember? He healed a guy at a different pool who was crippled. Do you remember? And he healed him on the Sabbath. Oh, here we go again. Another Sabbath. The rest of the chapter is a Sabbath controversy for the most part. So what does that have to do with anything? The, not God, but the Pharisees had made up man-made traditions and rules of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Okay. One of them was you can't knead, K-N-E-A-D, dough, D-O-U-G-H. Like you're going to make donuts or bread, ladies, men. That's work. You can't do it. Did God say that? No, they made it up. Okay. The word for dough is the same as the word for dirt. So you're saying it's dough? No, I'm saying you do this. He's doing the same thing. He's purposely working because he knows it's Saturday, the Sabbath, and he wants to provoke a confrontation and get them to think about their silly Sabbath laws. Would you rather? By the way, could Jesus have waited till Monday? Say to the blind dude, sorry, Sabbath. I'll see you on Monday. Will you be here? Sure. Why couldn't he have done that? Why do it on the Sabbath? Why do it with dirt? Maybe John Piper's right. Just to work on the Sabbath. Is that really work? The way God had set it up, it was, what do you do? I'm a carpenter. Don't work on the Sabbath. You know what that means? Don't do your work on the, don't be so into money that you forget who gave you the talent of carpentry, don't work on Sunday, on Saturday, on the Sabbath. John Piper believes that he did this purposely and may have even picked the day um, to provoke them. In John 5, 17, Jesus says, God works on the Sabbath. 
and so do I. And then he even gives examples in the other gospels where he says, and so do you. If you have a donkey and it gets stuck in a pit, you don't say, sorry, we'll be back on Sunday. You get him out now to save his life. If your son falls into a well, you pull him out, right? Okay, let's keep rolling because now we are running out of time and the teacher's babbling too much. Um, he spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva and puts it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent, verse 7 says. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. What did Jesus not do? Remember he said in the last chapter, I'm not, I'm not trying to glorify myself. If he was, he would have said, gather around everybody, watch this. Right? Very private little miracle. Other people are around, but he just gets spits, puts the mud in the eyes, go into the pool of Siloam. Okay, what's this pool of Siloam? Siloam means scent. Okay, the pool was named that because the water wasn't native to being there. What do you mean? I mean, it was from a ways away and they had built an aqueduct and sent the water from over there to where they wanted it in the pool. You with me? Sent. But remember, there is no detail in the Bible that's just random. He, John just threw that in. Listen, the, the water was sent to that place as a blessing, right? because that's where people needed it. Jesus, the son, was sent by the father. He just said that. We must do the works of him who sent me. Did you notice that? Jesus was sent to us. He's the sent one. Siloam can mean the sent one. He sends the man to the pool. The man is also sent as the Father sent me, so I am sending you out into the world. Remember that verse? Okay. So he goes to the pool of Siloam. He obeys, right? In a way, he's got no choice. Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. What if the blind man said, no? Well, then you got mud in your eye, dude. You probably should wash it out, right? The guy goes to the pool, washes and for the first time in his life as an adult man, washes the water out and can see people, buildings, him, his own hands, water for the first time. That's what the light of the world does. He illumines. He allows us to see. Okay. So, so far, this is a physical healing, which is cool. And only God can do it. So it's probably God doing it here. Jesus. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, okay. So the man can see. Jesus does not go with him. Did you notice that? He sends him, you go. Right? The man has to do something in obedience. He does it. Jesus disappears from, for a little while from the story. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's so, so matter of fact, the way John says it. Verse eight, the reactions. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Yeah, it's him. Others said, no, but he's like him. He looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. It's almost humorous, right? 
is it him? Is it, he looks like him. the guy's going, it's me. If you've ever known anybody that's blind, if they could suddenly see and look you in the eye, which they never did before, they would maybe look a little different to you, right? Some have asked, did the man go to the pool of Siloam by himself? If so, how did he get there? You ever watch blind people by themselves with a cane? They know 42 steps, and then you turn right over here. They have it pretty well down. Maybe his friends helped him, or maybe apostles helped him. We're not told. But there's already a controversy. Is it really him? Looks like him. I'm the guy. Verse 10. So the neighbors, the city folk ask, verse 10, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. It's a logical question. You were born blind. This is unbelievable. He replied, the man they called Jesus. I want you to notice how much does he know about Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know. Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. No. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, doesn't know. The man they called, he probably asked somebody, who was the dude with the mud? I'd like to punch him in the nose before I go wash. His name's Jesus. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed. Notice he heard the word and he obeyed. Simple command. And then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him, verse 12. I don't know, he said. Isn't that interesting? He's on his own now, but next week we're going to see the rest of the story. And it, it's pretty amazing. Um, it's just beginning. Next week, I want you to notice the progressive revelation. I want you to notice how surrounded by controversy and a bunch of hypocritical idiots, so, sorry, the man's faith is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. We'll see it until he does what no one has done in the gospel of John so far to my memory, which is he worships Jesus. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll get out of here. Hope to see you next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we have a Savior that has lived the perfect life we could never live and died the horrible death we deserve, God. We, we owe you and him everything. Thank you that we are a bunch of people here on Zoom and in Oakhurst, California. All of us were born blind born in sin. And we now see, we see ourselves, we see you, we see your word more clearly. We see our future, which is so awesome. We're, we're so thankful, God, we can hardly speak. And like the blind man, we were washed and yeah, and we see. So help us to keep looking to you and your son for how you want to change us and use us to do those works while it's still day, meaning our lifetime. Who knows how much time is left on planet Earth for us or for the whole uh, human race who we don't know. And we can't wait to see you, Jesus, return. But in the meantime, we just ask that you'd use us however you see fit, God. Tell us what to do and will obey. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you all on Zoom. Thank you all here. Make sure those of you that are here that you say hello to someone you don't know. That's the most important thing. Those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. Hope to see you next Tuesday night. God bless you. Thanks for being here.